0: is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank, the International Leaders Summit. I'm Joel Anansami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sertorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. You can subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning in to America's Roundtable. We're delighted to have Emma Hirsch, rejoin us on America's Roundtable. Emil Hirsch is a shareholder in the Washington, D.C. office of Carlton Fields. Mr. Hirsch's national practice focuses on health care and commercial litigation. He's one of the top-rated business litigation attorneys in Washington, D.C. Importantly, Emil Hirsch, a principal leader, is addressing the resurgence of anti Semitism and Holocaust revisionism in America and Europe. He is fluent in German, Romanian, Hungarian, and Hebrew, and follows the events impacting Jewish communities worldwide with great interest. We would like to clearly communicate the following disclaimer. Mr. Emil Hirsch is not providing any legal advice to our listening audience. And with this here, we extend a warm welcome to Emil. Welcome, Emil.
1: Welcome, Emil.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: After the fall of communism, much of Eastern Europe, with the unique exception of Estonia, did not embrace the rule of law, protection of property rights, and the newly formed governments blocked efforts to establish independent judiciaries. Through corrupt privatizations in the 1990s, government officials and their private partners in crime in much of Eastern Europe got their hands on the most valuable assets in the national economy. Today, we are talking about Hungary. Uh, Viktor Orban was Hungary's Prime Minister from 1998 until 2002. Since taking power again in the 2010 elections, Prime Minister Viktor Orban's Fidesz party pushed through constitutional and legal changes that have allowed it to consolidate control over the country's institutions. Emil, What are your observations on what is going on in Hungary and what areas do Americans need to be concerned about?
2: Well, I uh, follow from uh, my vantage point basically three uh, issues uh, where I perceive that there is an internal relationship between the three. One is authoritarianism slash rule of law in Hungary. Two is uh, Holocaust revisionism. And three is anti-Semitism. And I think the issue that you're asking me about deals with the authoritarianism, which has eroded the rule of law, which uh, existed before this long period of 10 years that since Mr. Orban has been back in power in his second and subsequent terms in office.
1: According to the Freedom House report in 2019, Hungary's Fidesz-led government has moved to institute policies that hamper the operations of opposition groups, journalists, universities and non-governmental organizations whose perspectives it finds unfavorable. Emil, what internal relationship do you see between anti-Semitism? authoritarianism slash rule of law and Holocaust revisionism.
2: There is an internal relationship between them. I think we need to start with the most important part of the baseline, and that is authoritarianism slash rule of law. There is much more to my answer than the oversimplification that I'm going to offer you in my next sentence. However, It stands to reason that Anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism are ascendant and thrive more robustly in societies where there is authoritarianism and diminishment of the rule of law. Or conversely, in robust democracies where the rule of law is well established and there is no authoritarian tendency, that's where you can reasonably expect to see the levels of anti-Semitism. Semitism to be diminished, and for Holocaust revision not to rear its head in any appreciable way. Where there is authoritarianism and not enough respect or obedience of the rule of law, you can expect the other two pernicious phenomena to exist. Hungary, unfortunately, is a society in which anti-Semitism has long historic and cultural roots. Going back to the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, starting with the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the interbellum period between 1918 and the start of World War II, and then, of course, there is this very tragic era of the Holocaust. So, basically, Holocaust revisionism and anti-Semitism are not surprising phenomenon in a society where there is that kind of long-rooted history, and then you superimpose it on the climate where authoritarianism is on the rise, and the rule of law is in decline.
1: We we observed anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism going hand in hand with the absence of the rule of law, weak protection of property rights and rampant corruption. Recently, in judicial independence, Hungary is at 102nd place out of 141 rated countries in the World Economic Forum's competitiveness index. And we also have seen that by fueling anti-Semitism, and Holocaust revisionism, the corrupt networks are accomplishing two goals simultaneously. They keeping ownership of valuable assets that were originally confiscated from the Jewish communities and at the same time distracting the taxpayers from the real issues of the economy, poverty, and rampant corruption.
0: Emil, there is an obvious anti-Jewish rhetoric in the local Hungarian language at home when you peruse through the newspapers or watch the broadcast media from Budapest. And while public statements in English for an international audience including Washington, D.C. circles relay a pro-Israel stance, how does the Orban government reconcile the anti-Semitism issue between these two extreme positions?
2: It reconcile them at all, because the Orban government is employing these two polar opposite phenomena in the public discourse on a selective basis. It is almost like an individual speaking with a forked tongue to a particular audience. When they speak to a foreign audience or international audience, then you hear the pro-Israel, pro-Jewish rhetoric. When The audience is purely domestic, which it is during electoral campaigns in Hungary, whether they be for municipal offices or, more importantly, for national uh, offices in Hungary. The other rhetoric is employed. There's no attempt to really reconcile. It's just two messages, radically disparate, radically different to two different audiences. And then there are nuances, as you pointed out, in the Hungarian language. The, I am a native speaker of Hungarian; it is my mother language. And when I listen to Mr. Orban speak about uh, George Soros, or when he rails about multiculturalism, or when he rails against foreign oligarchs like Mr. Soros, he uses very carefully selected language. The word "Jew" will never, or "Jewish," never in that, but the slogan that he's employing is very obvious in terms of who he has in mind. I personally do not believe that Mr. Orban is an anti-Semite. However, he's a very, very clever politician. He even managed to split the Jewish community in Hungary, which is sad, over certain issues of Holocaust revisionism, but he uses anti-Semitism. In a very calculated way as an organizational or tool to mobilize political support for himself and his party, the fidès.
1: Yeah, that's certainly unfortunate that is happening in much of Eastern Europe, where anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism is used as a distraction from corruption and real issues in economy of those countries that have higher poverty rates and higher unemployment rates as well. We have observed the rise of anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism revisionism in a number of countries in Europe. And based on the most recent report for Hungary in 2019, released by the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom in June 2020, it says, I quote, significant percentages of Hungary society held anti-Semitic views, according to independent polls, and there were reports of anti-Semitic incidents, including verbal insults, hate speech, vandalism, and graffiti. Uh, Emil, how does Orban's government navigate the historical revisionism and specifically the history of Holocaust in Hungary?
2: The way the, it navigates this is, again, in a very specific way and in a very clever way. It employs basically two methods to do this. For every gesture that would be interpreted outside of Hungary or internationally as an anti-Jewish or a Holocaust revisionist message, Mr. Orban and his government are very, very skillful to counterbalance it not just with one, but with two other countervailing gestures. So let me give you an example. You know that Mr. Soros has become a poster boy in a number of Hungarian recent vintage elections that have occurred at the national level, as if Orban was campaigning against Soros, as opposed to campaigning against opposition candidates for the prime ministership. And one huge billboard that was all posted all over the country says, let's get together, let's prevail, so that Soros does not have the last laugh, okay? So you see, he's presenting it. Like he's running against a phantom candidate who's not on the ballot, but the phantom candidate is the billionaire from New York City, Mr. Soros. At the same time, when he's running the campaign and is making a Jewish Billionaire, the target, you know, of his message to his home audience. He is also drawing closer to the state of Israel. He is defending Israel in the councils of the European Union. He goes to Israel to the Wailing Wall and does something that no other visiting dignitaries do. When a visiting dignitary, including President Trump, goes to the Wailing Wall, a non-Jewish dignitary will put on a kippah, which is a small knitted head covering. Mr. Orban goes there and and put on the hat, the black hat that is associated with what Orthodox Jewish men wear. He is very, very cleverly playing the uh, pro-Jewish, pro-Israel theme. He also, his government, boasts on the international front that it has taken great strides in the law enforcement field to crack down against hooliganism, against Jews, against criminal acts that of an anti-Semitic character. And there may be validity to those statistics, but it doesn't undo the fact that there is in the Hungarian body politic a long history of anti-Semitism. And then when you poll people about how they feel about Jews in general, you get these statistics that you're citing that a very significant portion of the Hungarian population bears negative feelings so the way this thing is played is very very skillfully for everything that might be construed to be an anti-jewish act there are two or three pro-israel acts and there are statistics that are cited of how he's protecting the jewish community there is a big distinction in in holocaust history in hungary between who the perpetrators were? Were the perpetrators, of the Hungarian perpetrators that were complicit in the Holocaust, were they just Hungarian individuals with a larger share of the blame assigned to the Germans who at some point in March of 1944 occupied Hungary? Or Is the Hungarian state that existed and functioned in World War II as an allied state to Germany and the Axis also complicit? What all mainstream historians of the Holocaust, who have studied Hungary, agree on? Universally, is that the Hungarian state was complicit? That the rounding up of the Jews occurred by Hungarian, the Hungarian gendarmerie, the Hungarian police force, the Hungarian army. Of course, it was at the behest of Adolf Eichmann, and the cost came from, from Berlin. But the actual operation of rounding hundreds of thousands of people up, putting them into ghettos, loading them into cattle cars, taking them um, to Slovakia and it's only in Slovakia when the trains got to Slovakia that the Germans took over the control and, and the security function and then carried on you know with the trains traveling to Auschwitz. But what Orban has done is there's a deliberate effort to downplay the complicity of the Hungarian state, to elevate the role of Germany in, in this, and to assign maybe blame to Hungarian individuals here and there, but not the Hungarian state. And that is also A very, very clever way of revising history in a most revisionist way.
0: We have to remind our listening audience that over 6 million Jews were killed in Europe during World War II. And Emil, how does Holocaust revisionism pose a different challenge for Hungary than for some other countries in the region? As for an example when comparing Hungary to Poland?
2: Okay, I'm glad that you asked me that question. They are radically different situations. And the difference lies in this. In Poland, which had a much, much larger population of Jews at the start of World War II, we're talking about three million individuals versus fewer than one million in Hungary and the territories that Hungary occupied, uh, you know, during World War II. In Poland, there was no functioning government. or no Polish Government Poland was a completely occupied country. There was no Polish government of any type, with one exception: the pro-Western, pro-allied government in exile of Poland, which worked and functioned out of London. So the notion that the Polish state was complicit in the Holocaust is non-existent. In Poland, if there were Poles who, who aided the Germans or who participated in some of the atrocities or as collaborators, it was individuals. It was police officers that were Polish police officers that were hired to be auxiliary police by, uh, by the Germans. It's a radically different situation in Hungary. In Hungary, you have a functioning Hungarian government that was headquartered in Budapest with the cabinet, ministers with departments headed up by Regent Miklós Horthy. that was in power in Hungary during most of World War II, and the roundups, the ghettoization, the uh, uh, removal of the Jews from their home, being packed into into railroad cars and shipped off to Poland specifically to Auschwitz all occurred on the watch of a functioning Hungarian government in Hungary. You see the the radical difference in Poland you could safely say that there is no state responsibility because there's no functioning Polish government inside of Poland whereas in Hungary is carried out almost 100% by the uh, uh, Hungarian authorities at the direction of a functioning government resident in Budapest.
1: Emil, how would you describe similarities between Orbán's policies today and those of pre-1945 Hungarian governments?
2: There are a couple similarities. The pre-1945 governments, especially those prior to 1940, Admiral Mitros Korty was the regent and the leader of uh, Hungary. Anti-Semitism existed. It existed at the popular level. It existed at political level. And it existed also among the elites in intellectual life. It's clear That since the collapse of communism, and it is, there has been a revival of nationalism in Hungary. There have been anti-Semitic authors or extremely nationalistic authors that dare to raise their voices and are, are very public about their views on topics having to do with Hungarian nationalism and Hungarian nationalism being tied in with the idea that this is a christian nation and therefore or only christian tradition is representative of what a true hungarian is so those trends have not disappeared i think what we're seeing today is almost a continuation of what existed during this period from 1919 through 1940 in It is, I would say, a revival.
0: That's very important indeed to note, uh, Emil. And how would you describe, when we look at what is happening in Hungary today, why has Orban's message resonated in many circles in Europe, Russia, and the United States? And uh, also, as we look at this proposal called the House of Fates, a museum supposedly addressing the Holocaust, but leaving a great many in confusion. I will answer it in two
2: parts, because the House of Fates is really a separate issue from the first part of your question, which is, what has enabled his message to resonate in Russia, in the United States, and elsewhere? And and the answer to that is quite obvious and rather simple. Orbán has very cleverly and very astutely established his reputation as uh, a defender of uh, European Christian values, a nationalism based in uh, Christianity, opposition to immigration from uh, Middle Eastern countries such as uh, Syria, uh, him standing up to the uh, European Union and to Liberal governments like Germany, which wanted and did take in lots of Middle Eastern refugees, and by standing up to the refugees, he's basically staked out a position that he is the defender of borders and of traditional society in Hungary and keeping the hordes of foreigners out. And that obviously resonates in countries that have had to struggle with these issues, like the United States. And in Russia, I think it's his authoritarianism tendencies that make him popular. And the other thing that makes him popular with the government and the elites of the Russian Federation is the fact that he has been very outspoken and very unashamed and unabashed in saying that he is a a Democrat, he favors democracy. But not liberal democracy, it's an illiberal form of democracy, and I think that is a message that resonates very well in the Russian Federation, and also in certain quarters in the United States. House of Faith issue is an issue which illustrates how clever the Orban government is in its political messaging, okay? And here's why. House of Faith is a translation of uh, two words in Hungarian, Shorsok uh, Chaza. sorsok means the faith, and "haza" is the house. It's an ambiguous message when you really think about it. And it's a ambiguous message because it subliminally equates in the minds of a listener who thinks the fate of the Jewish people during the uh, Holocaust in Hungary, with the fate of the general Hungarian population during the many years of communist dictatorship, and it suggests a common notion of suffering. We both suffered, all Hungarians and the Jewish Hungarians, but our suffering is equivalent, Whereas. That is a very debatable proposition, to say the least, but there are other problems with it because it denigrates the fact that there was a genocide against Jews in Hungary, whereas during the communist regime, there was brutal dictatorship, but there was no genocide against the Hungarian people as a whole. So you see, very ambiguous term creating sort of a moral equivalence between destruction of Hungarian Jewry during the Holocaust and the suffering of all Hungarians during the Communist era.
1: Emil, apart from uh, fueling Austro-Hungarian imperial encroachment by recreating a map of the Hungarian Empire, it was recently in one of his uh, tweets that there is an obvious danger from Orban in other areas. Why should informed citizens and leaders in the Western-style democracies be skeptical of Orbán Suave's attempts to deflect attention from the criticism of his rule.
2: People should pay attention because, as I've tried to show in, in this interview through my comments, we are dealing here with a very, very sophisticated media, public relation, and political messaging. The Orban government is very, very astute. They will never make the mistake of coming out with an anti-Semitic, overtly anti-Semitic message where Jews are singled out by name. It's always codes, dog whistles, and then it is always cop always coupled with some counterbalancing gesture either towards Israel or towards the Jewish community. And in the case of the House of Fates, when the Orban government received huge criticism over the content of the House of Fates, which is a museum that is really being enabled by the Hungarian government, I mean, they donate the, the, the land, the buildings, museum. a uh, costs of operation are going to be funded by the Hungarian government when it, when it opens <laughs> going forward. But at the same time, when the pressure came on, and the some of the international Holocaust scholars Yad Vashem and and large elements of the established Jewish community criticized the direction of the, in the revisionist direction of the, uh, the museum. Then they turned the museum over basically to a domestic Hungarian Jewish organization and said, well, they are going to be the operators and are going to work on the development and run the museum. So you see, it's Always, every gesture is that it, it, where they're being criticized, every controversial gesture always counterbalanced with some other positive gesture, like the selection of a Jewish organization <laughs> to be in charge of this, as opposed to, you know, the the government-related historians that originally were going to be responsible for the content and the development of the museum. And then the other reason is that because the Orban people are so clever in their political messaging, and they're able to so well to navigate between polar opposites, the possibility of uh, leading astray unsuspecting. Suspecting, I should say, Westerners, and even intellectual elites that do not have enough of a background or knowledge of Hungarian history, society, and culture, is a phenomenon that you know, one needs to be concerned about, because the ability to spin this thing in a way that would be attractive to Western audiences always lurks beneath the surface.
1: Uh, yes, Emil, and if I may add, uh, this would be irresponsible behavior, as we've noticed and observed in uh, Prime Minister Orbán' most recent tweet, where he recreated a map of large Hungary all the way to the Adriatic Sea, actually fueling Hungarian territorial expansion again for the domestic market.
2: I am familiar with the um, development that you are um, describing, where he and his office displayed a large map of Greater Hungary, which uh, elicited fierce uh, uh, critical reaction from Croatia and from Romania. And again, this has to do with the fact that Hungarian nationalism has often been associated with revanchism. And revanchism meaning the recovery of territory that was once part of Austria-Hungary, but since 1918, or since the end of World War II, has ceased to be Hungarian. Territory and it belongs to adjoining states like Serbia, Romania, Slovakia, Ukraine, and Croatia. The Orbán government is very attuned to the idea that it's easy to mobilize Hungarian nationalism and to have Hungarians rally around the flag and support the Fidesz party when they're given this romantic, emotional. Message that there's a greater Hungary and that aspirationally one day all Hungarians will be united.
1: As we've said it so many times, uh, by fueling anti Semitism and Holocaust revisionism and now even territorial expansion, uh, the corrupt networks are extracting the populace from the real issues of the economy, poverty, and rampant corruption.
2: It is a very clever way. Or, like you say, of distracting attention from numerous domestic problems, economic, social governance problems like corruption, by throwing out the red meat of nationalism or religion flag that plays very well in Hungarian society, and frankly, in, in all levels of Hungarian society, from the rural to the urban, to the, to the elites.
0: For those interested in learning more about Hungary and what is happening in that part of the world in Eastern Europe where there is a resurgence of anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism, we at America's Roundtable and the International Leaders Summit look forward to posting uh, relevant articles, op-ed pieces, commentaries, and research in better understanding what is happening and how principal leaders from the West can address these greater concerns in Hungary and in Eastern Europe. Indeed, uh, we appreciate your leadership, Emil, in reminding us about the importance of remaining vigilant, being aware, and well-informed to address this here with leaders from within Washington, D.C. and other capital cities across Europe that are concerned about these issues. We are delighted to have Amal Hirsch return on America's Roundtable. Thank you so much for joining us, Amal.
1: Thank you, Amal.
0: You are very welcome. Emil Hirsch is a shareholder in the Washington, D.C. office of Carlton Fields. Mr. Hirsch's national practice focuses on health care and commercial litigation. He's one of the top rated business litigation attorneys in Washington, D.C. And we would like to clearly communicate the following disclaimer. Mr. Emil Hirsch has not provided any legal advice to our listening audience. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit. I'm Joe Lan co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit.